podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. They might talk about humour, music, film, books, football and box sets, exercise and maybe even food. Trivia and sport, politics and health, sometimes well-being too. On the life with Brian. On the life with Brian. Hello there, a warm welcome to Life with Brian, episode 11. Uh, can you believe it's episode 11 already? I'm Mark Godfrey, uh, Brian McClare is here of course. Brian, how are you doing? Um, let's not talk about Scotland, eh? No, let's not talk about uh, football. Um, I'm in the finest of, of fine fetals, thank you very much. Good. Uh, and Matthew Chris here too, as usual. How are you doing, Matthew? Very well, thanks. Hello, everybody. And our special guest this week is comedian, actor, podcaster and presenter, Justin Morehouse. Justin, welcome. Are you well? I'm very well, thank you. I've uh, got a new little dog here. And uh, yeah, everything's good. Got my new little spaniel down here. She's a rescue dog. She came from, a, she was from a puppy smuggling gang. And when I told my friend, he thought she was a smuggler. <laughs> <laughs> he, he thought she'd been arrested. <laughs> I said, no, the gang smuggle puppies. They're not like this intricate network of puppies going, let's get some gear in. I've just been listening to um, another podcast that you're going to do, you've just done, Justin, uh, called Life Goals. Oh, Theo Delaney. And uh, there's a couple of things in there that uh, amuse, well, lots of things in there that amuse me, but... uh, Brian Robson, I, went, I was fortunate enough to be uh, play with Robo, but also that I was as uh, for a period of time I was his uh, roommate because in those days, yeah, the the club uh, was uh, too tight. I'm not too tight. They changed it later on, uh, not long after I left it, so everybody could have a room each, you know. But uh, in those days, we had you had a roommate, and for a period of time, I had Robo. And now that, that when you told that story about saying that. Uh, uh, put your arm around you as a, <laughs> as a young as a player as a person from yeah. how you managed, and that I was delighted that, that he said something funny because in my whole time of known Robert, he has <laughs> remotely funny. I love him. I think he's a great guy. He's wonderful. <laughs> uh, I, that's something that I, I, I'm delighted about. That <laughs> he said something like that, but I listened to a few things you said talking about humour, and that. Uh, you or someone might think something is hilarious, but uh, it just falls flat. Hmm. Uh, one of the other things I thought you might have married up, you're, you're losing your brother at Old Trafford with a brother called Martin by Tom Robinson Band as part of your choice of music. Right, no, I don't know that it's song. That you, you know, if you take your brother at the game, what a memory that is that you've lost them. Yeah. No. yeah. How are you going to go home and explain? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You've lost your, your your brother. Yeah, lost uh, him. What it said came to me was that you're talking about music and a lot of the stuff I loved that you choices of tracks. But I was wondering though, was that what was the first gig you went to? Where was it? Where was it? Was it any significance in your life, or was it just? Well, it's one of those things, isn't it, where people can you can always pick the cool one, can't you? Or you can go with the real one. Well, and a real yeah. one 
was I was about 12 or 13. And because uh, my mum knew the manager of the Thameside Theatre in Ashton, we got tickets to go and see Fat Larry's Band. Oh, Zoom. Who opened with Zoom. They finished with Zoom. And they finished with Zoom. Zoom. <laughs> and encored with Zoom. They played it three times. <laughs> So that was the uh, that was the first one. Um, I can't think the actual first uh, gig. I, I probably, do you know what? I think it was the House Martins, uh, and that remains sort of like my one of my probably my second favorite gig. But my first fa- favorite gig saw early. I saw the Beautiful South on their first tour, and they were just incredible. I saw them at the International in a really small venue, and they're like in a brass section and everything. And they weren't. They were still. They were. I mean, I think they are quite sort of. Um, acerbic anyway you know it's like sugar-coated acid isn't it what they do that that pop music um and i think i think that a lot of people like them and don't get them if you know what i mean well they don't i don't think a lot of, i think a lot of people listen to the, the music don't know if they actually listen to lyrics so if you listen to their lyrics and what they're actually saying um they're wonderful and uh, uh and uh, pertinent in many different situations a lot of them uh, very realistic, mm-hmm. you know. Um, the, the the obviously clearly the, the trips that uh, that uh, Heaton takes to Rotterdam to enlighten himself uh, works out works wonderfully because that's what he goes to write. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? That I love that. He goes there to write all the time. I remember in the sort of eight nineties as well. He used to go and watch loads of Italian football on his own. He used to just go to Bari and places like I just watch. Footballers, I remember reading about it once, and I think he's an interesting bloke, isn't he? I think he's a complex uh, man, but I think he, I think he's great. Um, my favourite thing about Beautiful South is when they split up. They officially split up due to musical similarities. <laughs> I just wanted to give you a little uh, uh, sort of underline and support for your uh, your irritation of having to travel to Crystal Palace. All right. Uh, Particularly midweek, um, because when I, when I was playing, we wanted uh, certainly me, and I think then there's a general a view that we always wanted to get relegated were Ipswich, Norwich, and Crystal Palace. <laughs> they were the three worst trips to go. Just this, based on that, this is yeah, on the bus. You go on the bus into the midweek game. I mean that. That that game coming back from Crystal Palace after um, Eric had a Eric um, did a little chat with the guy in the crowd was just a just a horrendous journey back. You know, it's just, as you said, you know, he, he travelled to London and then you have to travel again. Yeah, and uh, it's just getting getting up home at two o'clock in the morning was uh, miserable. Uh, um, uh, so yeah, we do, we. Would, pick those three teams to go and then to go down to the drive to from Manchester to East Anglia. Uh, uh, it's wonderful with all the scenery you get to see all the rolling hills of Lincolnshire and you know, five hours down to, down to Anglia and Suffolk and all that kind of thing. So it was like, no, no, we would be we would be supporting uh, whoever was playing those teams. Bit bit of a bit on them, I suppose, but just in the fact that it was a ball tightener of a journey for us. It's funny you mentioned Eric Cantona there, because I think, Mark, you were going to, you had something to mention about Mr. Cantona, didn't you? Yeah, obviously the pair of you have had um, supporting roles to Eric at some at one time or another. Um, Justin, what was it like working with him on the film? 
um, looking for Eric. Oh, is that, uh, but, you know what? It was kind of so. I never think of myself as an actor. I'm, I've, I've always been really lucky at getting getting things on a little bits of it. I'm not trained or anything. I don't pretend to be a great actor, but sort of Ken Loach is in town and, and the sort of audition process was you have to go and meet him at Friends Meeting House, you know, the Quaker's place behind the library on Mount Street. And you, you go in and just chatted and he went, oh, so what have you been up to? What, what do you do? Where, where did you grow up? What jobs have you done? And you tell him all that and he goes, right, thanks, see you again. And you go out and you tell your agent, you go, I don't think it went very well. I didn't have to read anything. But he just gets to know, he gets to know people and, and, and gets to know them. And then you do two or three different uh, sort of chats like that. And then you, you meet some different people. And a lot of people he works with actually are from, from Glasgow. Like a lot of the production team and the crew, like, uh, they're all sort of like a band that I've been together. And then, so I get the part. And then one day he rings me up and he says, um, can I let you into a secret? And I said, yeah, I thought he was going to tell us he was like a Tory or something like that. You know, it's like, this is just a character that I do. Uh, Lord Loach of, uh, of Nuneaton. And he says, uh, he says, oh, we've, we've got Eric Cantona in the film. And I was like, fucking hell, like, this is great. And he says, but no one's going to know. Literally, no one's going to know, including the, the lead actor, until he appears on screen. So that's how it happens. So if you've seen the film... Steve Everts, who plays uh, Little Eric, turns around and goes, um, well, what the fuck hell are you doing here? And that was his reaction. Because he thought, he, he heard this sort of like, these French voices, but we had like a Belgian Belgian crew. And, uh, you know, Belgium, it's just the French whales, isn't it? And uh, he just thought it was uh, <laughs> them. But anyway, before that, he said to us, he said, I want you to come and do some improv uh, with Eric Cantona. You and John Henshaw, he's not lived in Manchester for a while and I want to get him up to speed on the accents and the way people speak and things like that. So they had me who sounds like like this, like Percy Sugden and slice of cake. And then he had John Henshaw shut up the side of his mouth because you can't hear what he's saying anyway, doing this thing. With, so we went and did like a, a, a morning with him. And, and you know, I, I, it's like footballers, you know, when you meet footballers, you, it's just you just giddy, aren't you? You kind of like, you know, they they they've lived their your dreams. These people have lived your dreams, and and without being too melodramatic about it, you know, football and United and Cantona and all that has got me through some difficult parts of my life, and has you know taken me. It's the only time I get taken away from myself when I go watching football. So to see him in this room and it's Cantona and everything else that goes with it and the mystique and everything else and you probably just know him as a as an ordinary bloke brian but we were doing all this thing and at the end we're having a cup of tea and i'm sat there going i'm having a cup of tea with eric Cantona," and he pushes the plate of biscuits towards me and he says would you like a jamie dodger (laughs) (laughs) all right thanks eric and then so then working with him it, it you know i i'm sure this will be backed up by anybody who's ever met him he was just 100% 100% normal and ordinary and I mean not ordinary still Eric Cantona he still floated everywhere but he queued up with everybody he didn't you know there's no star treatment you know they're very much team player uh we had hundreds of extras on the film for, on different days and he never left anyone without a sign sign thing people were bringing stuff to him and he was signing stuff like until it went dark we were on a cricket pitch once in Salford where we had this unit base and he just signed and signed and signed and signed and he was just, he was just great. I just thought he was, I didn't have much to do with him, sort of like working with him, filming with him, but he was around and everything. He was just 
you know, meeting your heroes is sometimes fraught, but he was, he, 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 he exceeded any expectations I might have. And then I was really lucky to go to Cannes for, to the film festival when the film was in competition, two or three of us from the film went and a typical Ken Loach fashion. We, we were in a van. We got picked up from the Trafford center in a van and taken to uh, Liverpool airport where we got EasyJet to Nice. And then when we got to Nice, the festival took over then. And then we had cars and everything else. It was all kind of swanky and it was really nice. But they wanted to um, make an impression. So we walked from the hotel uh, to the, 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 the festival theatre where, I don't know if you've been to Cannes, it's at the end of the Quasette, whatever they call it. It's the huge big thing. And we walked down like, like, a, like a team, you know. We walked out the hotel and Canton, I was at the front. And I said to him, I said, uh, all right, Captain. And he went, it is a little like this. And then we just walked and think, and it's just magical moments, you know, that, that those sort of like pinch yourself kind of never experienced it. And then, you know, the, the, the film did well. And then we watched it in uh, Parswood Cinema as well with, with uh, uh, Alex Ferguson. We watched it, just him and a few people from the club and him. And, and then he turned around and he enjoyed it. And all these amazing things happened. And then I, I hosted the premiere at the uh, Red Cinema Salford, you know, at the uh, at Media City. Yeah. So I hosted the premiere. So this whole journey for me was just incredible from first meeting Ken Loach to finding out about Eric Cantona, filming the film, which was great. And then the can thing and then seeing your, your face on a poster. And I got my mum and dad a car. My mate's got a, a car company. And I said, oh, will you take my mum and dad? And they, 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 they hired a massive Rolls Royce for my mum and dad. So my mum and dad arrived in this Rolls Royce. It was like premiere, we walked in. Uh, I introduced Ken Loach and Eric to the audience. They said a few words, we watched the film. I sat there with my mum. And at the end, I turned to my mum and I went, well, and she went, it got better towards the end. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers, mum. So yeah, it was a very special, uh, magical uh, time. Uh, I don't know how long you, you play with him, Brian. He, he, he's the, whole a, the, whole, the whole time that he was there, that was there the whole time. So he's a, he's a good man, isn't he? Yeah, I, I liked it. I mean, I've always, when I talk about him, he came, we knew he was a great player. I'd seen him playing um, before he went to Leeds. Uh, I was up, uh, fortunate enough to be a sub for Scotland when we went to play uh, in France, against France. And uh, part of the uh, Andy Roxburgh used to try and try and use uh, comparisons sometimes to give you to make the uh, opposition appear to be less good than they were. Mm -hmm. I always remember him talking about three players that day. There was a little lad called Perez. <laughs> uh, there was a, there was Deschamps, who's the who's the, the national coach now, and there was uh, Eric, and he described uh, Perez. And this is him talking about how we've nothing to fear. These are the three most influential players at the time. Uh, and he said that uh, Perez is like a poor man's Pat Nevin. <laughs> he said, uh, Champ, he said, uh, he's not a patch on you, Murdo. Now that's Murdo McLeod. <laughs> he played for Celtic and went on to play for Borussia Dortmund. And as for that Cantona, he's a poor man's Joe Jordan. Remember <laughs> <laughs> that? Okay, right, right. So... The first thing we noticed is that it's absolutely pissing down. I mean, it's lashing down. All the French players have got moulded boots, you know, like soft, 
half grounders and all the Scottish players I've got the biggest studs you've like rugby studs, biggest studs you've ever seen. And uh, we thought all these were sliding all over the place, just a bit like you mentioned earlier. Eric uh, uh, was uh, gliding across the pitch. Yeah. After five, you know, he said they said that Deschamps never gets a goal. Perez is a poor man's back there. After five minutes, Deschamps scored. After after ten minutes or something like that, Perez lays the ball off a cat. Eric and he beats two players and makes it two 0 and we're getting beat three 0 I think by half time. And it's one of those games where you're watching as a sub thinking, uh, "Don't put me on." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, you know, like, but a lot, but with any this reputation is the own fun to replay. But when he came, same thing as you said, he was wonderful. He uh, and he, I think he felt at home right away, and the almost immediate rapport. Um, when he scored his first goal at um, Hillsborough, was it was evident that that he was going to he was going to make a difference to to what we were doing, and uh, hmm. he was he was a catalyst to was to winning that Premier League in the in the first. Championship for the United has secured for a long time, but a great guy, yeah. Funny, um, didn't say very much at times, but he would always laugh along, uh, subtly at different things. Um, and I got I got on really, really well. I mean, I used to, I used to mess about with him saying that it's not fair that you can have some poncy poet as a as a hero. He pretends you paint. I've seen these paintings, it was painted by numbers, you know, but he's standing in a beautiful field yeah. in a money-like setting in some place in France, you know, and he turns it around and it's like, it's like painting by numbers, or, you know, and, uh, you know, you can have your, your tattoo Geronimo, you know, yeah, it's okay, because, uh, yeah, he says, and I'm a wee boy from, from Scotland, if I come out with that sort of thing, I'd get ridiculed, you know. He said, Dad, you got away with it? And he just did that perfect Gaelic thing where he just shrugged and put his hands out. <laughs> basically, he's saying, without saying it, I am Cantona. You know, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, you know, he was, he was quality. Good guy. Uh, yeah. I, like, I met him again one more time. He invited us to, uh, when he was at New York Cosmos, he invited us when they played, um, they play United in, for Scalzi's testimonial. And uh, yeah. and we went to the after party afterwards and walked into Lowry and he was talking to Pele. And I walked in and he sort of like said to Pele, sorry, I just, I, I, sorry, sorry, Pele. I just need to talk to my friend here. And I was like, this is fucking brilliant. <laughs> these, are, these, are, these are things that, that you uh, when you were, uh, when you were getting cats in the bus to school as a 14 and 15 year old dreaming, yeah. you know, you were dreaming of working uh, as a, a salesperson and then followed down the line you're going to be a, a famous actor yeah <laughs> but yeah see things that you're going to get you're going to get introduced as um as uh to by two pele that yeah that express mate i read something that said that you told your first joke to some like a holiday camp when you were eight is that that right or is that just bullshit? well no no uh my, my grandparents moved to cleveland's and um uh so every we used to go many times at the weekend like you know like most people from around here they, they sort of retire and went to live in blackpool cleveland's and they used to go to the legion on a saturday afternoon sunday afternoon and they had like a kids talent show and i got up and and i told a joke but it was the um 
the old, you know, the, the King Kong's balls, ping pong balls joke. So I sold that when I was eight and everybody, I remember people laughing and being shocked. And I thought, I like, I like this. This is good. Like, and my mum was horrified and sort of like happy at the same time. So I thought that that's for me. But then I never really thought, like, I wasn't a stagey kid. I never did anything like that. I wasn't in any drama clubs. I didn't, it never ever occurred to me to do it until much, much later in life. I was tw 29 before I became a comedian. And, uh, yeah, so the, the, I look at things, and so you like you're the oldest, aren't you? Yeah. Yeah, I'm the oldest, and I I felt everything I had to do was like I was like the first to do it, mm. pioneer things. So I was, and then still I'm uh, shy when it comes to new things. Mm -hmm. So for you to do that, to stand up there in that situation and do what you did, I think is at that time is very brave. I I, I would I wouldn't have never been able to do that at, at that age. People, Even if I had the best joke in the world in Marmory, you know. Yeah, people say that about comedians a lot. They say, oh, you must be very brave. And it's that old joke, isn't it? Well, you see my act, you know I'm brave. But people say you must be brave. And I don't think it's a brave thing. I think it's, I think comedians are sort of like born or, or you know, they've got the need to, 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 to do that. But it's, it's wanting to do it in the first place is the first thing. The actual doing it is inevitable. If you want to do it, that's where the, the sort of, that's where the click comes. No one ever wants to do it and doesn't do it. It's an itch that you've got to scratch, you know, and I think it's wanting to do it, which makes many of us odd, you know, many of us are just, you know, functioning weirdos. Isn't that everybody in the planet? Yeah, it is, of course. But I mean, we found our thing, which is good. So you're telling that joke. Who told you that joke? Where did you get it from? Who was the one that, or several members of your family who were funny? Was it your parents? I think so. Grandparents I or? I think everybody, I think everyone, yeah. everyone was funny. Everybody was funny in, 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 in the mates and everything else. I did, my, my, my grandparents were both from big families. I used to have this uh, uncle called Uncle Norman, who's the funniest bloke that I'd ever, and still is one of the funniest bloke. He used to make funny jokes and do daft things. I remember once he said to me when I was about seven or eight, my dad was, um, I'd been made redundant again. He's like, you know, his dad was always getting made redundant. It was just that's the, the job that he had and the times we lived in. He was always an uncle number. He said, hey, your, your dad's looking for a job, isn't he? And I said, yeah, yeah. He said, I've, I've, I think I've got one for him. And I was thinking, oh, this is really good because my dad can get a job. And he goes, he said, it's at the sardine factory. I said, all right. He said, what it is, he said, uh, he said the sardines that get put in the tin, he says, and they come, they come down and think, he says, and your dad has to get a matchstick, he says. And just as he come past, he says, he has to make sure all the eyes are closed before they put the lids on. Because <laughs> no one wants to see a sardine's eye when he opened it in. And I went, right, I'll, t I'll tell my dad, I'll, I'll tell him there's a, there's a job going. <laughs> so I, I, do you remember, does yeah. anybody remember, before sort of the internet and memes and, and shared jokes and everything, my dad used to bring like pages of jokes home and printouts yeah. from work and and pieces of paper that if you folded them one way, they're like an emu. And if you unfold them another way, they're like a woman with the legs apart and things like that. So there's all that going on. And, and I remember a lot of um, rag, rag week books yeah, that they would buy. Yeah. And full of jokes and everything else. But just watching telly, you know, you know, I devoured comedy on telly, you know, Dick Emery and Les Dawson and two Ronnies. And, I wasn't a massive Morecambe and Wise fan, really, but I, I, I loved Dave Allen, even when I was dead young. I just thought it was exciting and just like, you know, pe making people laugh. I love Bob Bunkhouse and Bruce Forsyth and 
Who, who, are, who are your comedy heroes, Brian? Um, they're, they're very similar. Can I, I, I love and I still love what, when you mess about when the, the several hundred channels you've got on the, on the satellite platform that I'll, I'll just be scanning through for some, maybe say, because I, I, I can't abide listening to people at half time in the football. Yes. So they're looking for something to watch for 15 minutes. So I often go to the um, to the uh, the cooking channel to see what uh, Gok Wan's uh, conjuring up, you know, <laughs> or uh, or, or I come across uh, porridges on, and I, and I just think that's the most wonderful, wonderful thing. Even now, I mean, there's you know, it's, it's 30, 40 years ago, but it still seems the jokes are funny. They're just mm. timeless, you know, and the situation they're in is is funny. It's perfect, it's, isn't it? Because it's trapped. I mean, I, I've seen uh, a little bit of the the new one, which is garbage. Yeah, yeah. In comparison, and there's some some things that have been updated like that. But then I, a very similar thing that uh, we had a, a rag publication when I was at Glasgow Uni. It's called the Agora, and some of the jokes in that were you were, were uh, sick and sexist and all sorts <laughs> of different things. But which was as of its time. But then I, I started for some reason catching uh, Monty Python, which I just I, I just thought that was wonderful. Um, I, I would never really I, I never really enjoy I think my sort of Monty Python thing with the young ones. Yeah. When, when the young ones came along for yeah, me, right. I was that age where it just really got me and I just it was subversive and but I used to watch that with my dad. My dad used to my dad he died a couple of years ago but he 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 just loved laughing like he was a bit of an expert on Tom and Jerry. Like Tom and Jerry, come on in. You go, ah, oh, it's a nineteen fifty four. I'm not watching this. Like he liked the early stuff. He he hated the newer stuff. The newer stuff from like forty years ago. You go, nah, I'm not watching this. It's garbage. You know, like when 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 Tom began to speak, he was like, game's done. It's done. Yeah, <laughs> game's gone. While we're talking about youth and, and and everything, I was just thinking we should touch on football a bit. Um, just there's no secret that you're a big United man. I mean, when when did you first start? start going what were your first old Trafford memories well I um I, people say how did you choose we it was just we were United fans and that was it and um I went in about 1980 uh something like that my dad never took me my dad you know we there was four kids and like I said, mentioned before always being made redundant there wasn't a lot of money around and in those days I don't think most of my mates they just went on their own and so I was about 12, 13, when I got a paper round, I started going to, to Old Trafford. Used to go to Hyde United as well a lot and watch Hyde United on a Monday night. They were great. One of my favourite players ever played was a lad called George Ogani, who uh, played for Hyde United. He was a winger. He was un- incredible. He was one of like the first uh, black players to play in the non-league as regular. He used to get absolute dogs abuse, but he was brilliant, absolutely brilliant, um, like a Hyde United legend. And then... Um, Started going to United 12, 13, but it was a, it was a day. It was the full day. It was like, you know, we'd get the bus at 12 o'clock. We'd go and, um, we'd go and wait for the special outside the Grand Hotel where Big Ron had his, uh, his uh, pre-match meal and the players would come out and wait to us, <laughs> going up on a big, massive steak dinner. And then they'd wait to get the bus and we'd be at the ground for one o'clock and in the ground at half one when it opened and used to go on Stretford End and stand on the left side and, just those are real formative uh, times for me. Those are like where, where the friends that I made then and the friends that I were friends with now, I'm still, you know, best mates with now. And we, you know, still watch the football together and everything else. And then 
when I was about 14, 15, started going to a few away games. And uh, uh, yeah, and never looked back really, you know, never sort of, never havered. So if you were watching United regularly in the mid 80s, you must remember clearly when uh, a certain Brian McClare signed for United. I mean, any uh, standout memories of... Well, it's, it's funny, like I've got this, I just realised as I was drinking, I've got me, uh, me Celtic mug here. <laughs> So in the in the 80s, there was this strange thing going on where if you was a United fan, you were a Celtic fan as well. So it was the big United Celtic thing. So uh, we had a mate called Scots Prem Ken, whose uh, mum and dad were like uh, from Glasgow. The Welsh lad, wasn't he? <laughs> yeah, the Welsh lad, yeah. And uh, he used to uh, we used to go in his house, he used to speak with a Scottish accent to his mum and dad. <laughs> then he'd come out and he'd go, yeah, all right, we're going to shops. It was like really weird. <laughs> So he kept us up to date with what was going on in Scottish football. And uh, we, we'd heard about this guy who scored 30 goals for, for Celtic. And we were all like sort of quasi Celtic fans with our half and half hats on and everything else. So uh, it was like, I remember when, when, when you came, you were the saviour. You know, you're going to be the man that scores, you know, 20 goals, the first player since 1967. And you did, you smashed it, didn't you? You know, and, and yeah, it's very, very exciting times. Yeah, it was it was for me as well. Yeah, but one of the things that you that I liked when I was listening again about was that and you just mentioned it again there. How do you choose which side of the Stretford then, or which part of the Stretford then? Is that a historical thing, or was that the nearest to the because it was closest to the tunnel? What what was the no no? I love so, the bit where you said you had uh, you were throwing coins at the right side or the middle <laughs> of the tunnel side. Well, because yeah. I, I, I loved it. I thought it was I was fortunate to kind of go through that period of time where you've got the old Celtic Park. And then when I came to Manchester United, you had the paddock, you had, uh, you had the street for there, you had all of that sort of stuff. And, and you had people getting locked out if they weren't there at the time that you, you, yeah. were, you were talking. It was like, so so we, I, just, I we started, yeah, we started just going there. We walked up the steps. That, I mean, people always talk about that, but the first moment you walk up the, at the back of the street for end and you, you walk up and you've never seen green as green as that. You've never seen red as red as that. You've never seen... The place looked massive and tiny at the same time. And we just, we, I mean, there was nobody there. We just picked our spot. We got our spot. And from the first time that we, that I stood on that left side Stretford End, about halfway up next to the tunnel, I never stood anywhere else on the Stretford End. Uh, occasionally, oh, this is so bad. We used to go in the Stretford paddock sometimes because the um, it was cheaper. Uh, sorry, no, it wasn't. It was more expensive to get in the Stretford paddock, like 20p. But often the queue wasn't as long. So we'd go in straight back and then at the bottom of the fence, somebody pulled the bars open so you could walk through. So we, and then walk all the way around. But we, yeah, it's just, a, I don't know, straight for the end. It was just like a synonymous for me. I would, I would, I was always too frightened to go in the United Road when I was, when I was little, because that's where like the, and then it seemed to me that's where the hooligans were. And then the, the lads in the case standing above the away fans, they were like, the hooligans with money. <laughs> so I was never interested in any of that argy bargy. I'm not. I'm not a fighter nor a lover. I'm. A, I'm an observer in many ways. Um, a voyeur, some may call it. Uh, but um, yeah, I just used to stand there. It was. It was really weird. We used to sing. We had a left side. We had a left. We had a left side. Stretford, and and then the right side would sing. And then we joined together both sides and sing shit on the tunnel. I mean, you think about it now. We, you know, it's, it's pointless. But you know. Just thinking, Brian, your first goal for United was at Kate Stand End, wasn't it? Scoreboard end, whatever you want to call it. Did it when you finally scored in front of the Stretford end, did it mean more to you or was it was it not something that really No, you you're always 
you're always looking for that sort of thing. Any any goal, any goal at the, the end, the, the the you you would say the the, uh, the the biggest part of the support is going to be potentially the most enthusiastic, the most fanatic part mm-hmm. is because you 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 and we spoke about this a few times. Um, Justin, is that the, the situation we've got now is robbing the supporters and the players that that joyous celebration when they score a goal. Mm. I mean, I, I saw the first thing that Ronaldo does when he puts the ball in the net, his second goal yesterday, he looks to the linesman. Yeah. So he looks at the linesman and the linesman hasn't put his flag. So he knows he's got a chance that it's a goal. It may still be referred. And uh, yeah, just that joy of celebrating with, with the... You know, I found really weird in lockdown is when a player scores and it's like, if you scored against the rivals and he runs off doing this, like, <laughs> what are you doing? There's nobody in the ground. They're not showing anything anyway. <laughs> Some of them are not the brightest, are they? Some of them are not the brightest. I saw two no. kids coming off the field. They'd got a playing kids game under 11s. And they came off and they were talking to each other and they were literally doing that thing where they put their hand <laughs> in front of the mouth. <laughs> I, I don't I mean I don't know why they do it now in the professional game. I mean what they're doing now is is is, is trying to I mean all kids uh, learn people learn things by mimicking them. Yeah. So by things that see adults there are people doing. So they're now doing the same sort of thing as if it, that's going to be a very important part of the game. You have to practice. You know, there's you have to practice putting your hand over your mouth when you're talking to your teammates or, yeah. or talking to the coach. Uh, you may well have to practice keeping your hands in an unnatural position. <laughs> yeah, um, it's mad, it? it's going on about a natural position. I'm going, well, whatever you, it depends on how you play and what, how you, it depends how you react to certain situations. Your hands are in natural positions. Mm. A lot of the different times where you, 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 they'll be unnatural, but a lot, you know, it's, it's confusing and they keep changing it, don't they? Keep changing it. So the it, Italians, yeah. they're going berserk the other night because they're going mental the other night in the first game. Because in every single game in Italy last year, in the professional game, it would have been for one of the handballs, it would have been a penalty. Right? And what happens there, and, and it would be frustration for the coaches, is that they don't want their players getting distracted by things like that because that's when you when the opposition are the most dangerous. Mm-hmm. I don't know if they mentioned it again after the, or any time of the, I did watch the post-match analysis of, of Scotland's performance against the Czech Republic, but I noticed some of the little details that happened in the games that could be really important. And before um, before Marshall uh, was in a situation where he was, he was probably too far out of his goals, in the first half, he comes running right out of his goals in order to help out his defender and he kicks the ball out for a throw-in. The ball boy immediately throws it to the Czech player, who's right switched on, and he's ready to throw the ball over David Marshall's head for a, you know, for a Donnybrook, a fight in the box. And Marshall, really, and he sprints, the first time he sprints in the game, you see him sprinting back in, he's not looking where the ball is. So if, you, if somebody throws it and they, and they try a volley from out there, he's no chance because he can't see the ball. Uh, and it's just sometimes little tiny things. So I'm, 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 I'm shouting at the television, I'm thinking, who's... Fucking training. Who's not training those ball boys? Yeah. You, know, you, you throw it back quickly to the Scottish team and you pretend to drop it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, unless it's unless it's dependent on the score. Then if, they, if Scotland are winning, clearly the ball's you lose the ball, you drop the ball. Or, uh, 
or in Scotland need to get a goal, you get the ball back in quickly. And that, that's the sort of daft little things. And I'm shouting at it, going, oh, tough. poor little child, you know. <laughs> He's probably, he might be English. Do what they're supposed to do. Yeah. Check. Check. Small check. gains, small gains and small wins. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that's the thing. I mean, the, the, the kids, the, the Scottish players getting castigated on the television for having a shot. And nobody mentions that the, the Marshall far too far off his goals, you know. When you when you watch football, Brian, do you? I mean, obviously, if you're a Scotland fan or you you, you want United to win or Celtic or Motherwell or whatever, do you watch it like with an analyst eye or do you get caught up in it? I get completely caught up in it. At the, at the end of the game, I'm I'm, I'm tired. You know, yeah. I've, I've, I've gone through every different situation as it occurs and where it could possibly happen. And I get frustrated if that doesn't happen. I'm elated when it when it happens well. Um, and it, and it, it well, it's certainly been frustrating because of of this the situation that, that Celtic and United have been in. Celtic were poor last year, mm-hmm. and I think United, from the sense of what I want to watch, uh, are, are poor. I'm, I'm now I'm with the situation. Well, I'm now, I'm now a bit like you. You mentioned you're talking about De Bruyne and I'd be able to appreciate good players and different teams and yeah, is a kind of uh, kind of stepping away. To, I can do that, and and as much as I. You know, it, it, it pains me immensely to say that at some points in the last couple of years, I'd rather watch Liverpool and I'd rather watch City um, because United, you know, we want to be entertained. You know, I've always yeah, felt that, like yourself, you, you're going out there uh, to do what you love doing and you want to entertain people and hopefully they will be entertained by you. That's what I want to see when I'm watching football. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't want to see some kind of... Uh, a tactical sort of a scenario where um, right we'll do this and if we don't do this I mean I've always loved Mark Busby's thing about um, you know that uh, we never we were never concerned about if we lost a goal because we always felt that we scored more goals in the opposition mm-hmm. I don't see that happening now. I know that United did it a lot last year by having this uh, um, interesting little game to themselves where they go a goal or two goals down and then eventually come back into the game and, and, and win a, lot, a vast majority of them but the, 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 this thing about playing, well, I, I say it's four centre backs now because you've got you've got your two normal centre backs, and then you've got two centre backs that play in front of them. Because mm-hmm. clearly the two centre backs that play in normal positions are not good enough, so we have to put two condoms in front of them, you know, just in case that breaks down. Yeah, I would rather that they went the other way and played one, whatever it is, that my what team it is, and then I mean England did it the other night in, in their home tie. Uh, and I, I want to see flair play, as many flair players as they can. The rules have been changed dramatically since I was playing. There's nobody trying to uh, welly up the arse from behind and getting away with it, kicking you up in the air and all that kind of thing. So get as many attacking players on the pitches as they can. But they seem to have gone back the way. Is it is it because they haven't got the players though to play like that, or is it just a, a philosophy now? What that word I hate that word, but you know maybe because they haven't got two really good centre-halves, they've got to play two defensive midfielders. Yeah, well, 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 one of the, well, that happens in a lot of the teams. And why did they keep the goalkeeper keep giving the ball to them? Yeah. I mean, England <laughs> got themselves in all sorts of t- trouble the other night by keep giving the ball to centre-halves. Yeah. It's mad, oh. isn't it, that? It's a new, do you know, I, I think... So, like, I, I, I'm not an expert on football at all. I've not studied any badges. Just what I've watched over the years. But there is a... There's a few things that I think about football that I reckon that if they brought if they brought them in, if somebody tried them, I reckon they might work. Number one is, I'd say, 
You know when they uh, do that lineup where they have two players in the box and they're going to pass it to them and all that sort of thing? I just let it upfield because the game's really stretched there. And if you've got fast players, have a go. Have a go at that. The other thing I'd do to improve football day one is I'd take the time off the referee. It's bullshit. Yeah, well, I mean, that's one of the things they're looking at. They're talking about now uh, having time and play. Yeah, I'd have, yeah, exactly. I play, I play an hour. I play one hour on the whistle. And then everybody knows where they stand. And then yeah. I carry on playing until the ball goes out of play because that'll still make it exciting. Yeah, well, that, that was something they're having a look at. Well, other things. I'd, I'd scrap VAR, uh, the office at Broccoli Park, wherever it is. I'd scrap that bit. What I do is I do it like in, in uh, cricket. So the captain gets three chances. Yeah. Yeah. So if you think it might be a goal and it gets given against you, you're allowed to yeah, appeal. Yeah. Why would you do that? Why would you do it? It makes it more interesting. Well, it'd be, well also, like, I, I, Maybe it's because I've watched so much football and played so much football. A lot of the decisions I'm getting right the first time around. So I'm I'm watching the the, the Wales game on uh, on Saturday, and uh, as soon as the, the the second goal went in, I said that's offside, and it, it's nearly all the time just because you play and you're used to seeing what it is. <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of intrigued about who decides where the lines are going to be and who checks exactly who where the lines are, where the solar spots and where the lines are, you know. Yeah, um, yeah. But my thing is, it's robbing, it's robbing the, the fans and yeah. the players that yeah. moment of, of cel- well, when the fans can come back to, to football of, that, of those celebrations, you know. Uh, just a little point you made there. Did you take your kids to the football? Have you taken to the football? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's been, that's been the thing, yeah. So my son has been going uh, with me since he was like tiny um, and loves it, you know, has, has loved, that's what we've done together. My daughter's 16 now and she's kind of into it. She's kind of like, likes it, but she's not. Um, I'll say to her, I'll say, I've got a spare ticket for the match. You want to go? And she'll go, oh, no, I don't do this. And then I'll go, oh, I've got two spares now. Do you want to go with your mate? She goes, yeah, yeah, I'll go with me, mate. <laughs> so she likes going with her mate, uh, Ruben, and they have, good, they have a good time. Yeah, um, but they, uh, it's funny, really, because I think as I've got older, and I think you touched upon it before, I said it in that other podcast that we were talking about, that like I just really enjoy going to the match, and I really just, that's what I've missed in the pandemic, is just meeting my mates and just that that those moments, you know what I mean? Those sort of like walking in the turnstile, seeing the same people that you see all the time, parking your car in a normal place, having some chips. You know, the the, 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 the football is secondary, really. It's the, it's, the, it's the process, isn't it? Most people, when they go to mass, they don't get anything from the mass, do they? They get it from the, seeing the neighbours and clocking one up, letting people know they've been and all those sorts of things. That, that's, that's, for me, what I, I, I've really missed. And it's been a bit rubbish, really, hasn't it? Particularly for you, well, people like yourself who have relied on that, is, is that because that's your job, isn't it? You know, that's your hobby. Mm. And having that, that having that uh, interaction with between you and your audience, mm. I would imagine it wouldn't really matter how many is in the audience. It's just that little bit about the challenge for you to say, right, I'm going to make you buggers laugh, or at least one of you laugh. <laughs> yeah, there's a, there's been a thing. So, so we've been coming back and doing some socially distant stuff and everything else. And there's been moments that every performer, every comedian I know has been halfway through a gig has just gone to the audience. It's really nice being here, you know. <laughs> thanks, <laughs> thanks for coming. We've really, like, missed the audiences. We've, it's that, I think, you know, uh, sort of like financially and everything else that goes on with that, you can 
cope with that and you deal with it in whichever way you deal with it. But just, I, I've been a bit rudderless, a bit pointless. There's been, you know, no need for me. I mean, I'm used to that anyway, being a, a you know, 50 odd year old bloke now. There's no much point to me anyway, but my job is what I do and, and it is me. You know, I yeah. get itchy. It's Even if I'm not gigging, I think at six o'clock, seven o'clock, I start getting ready for a gig and, you know. Yeah, you, you fell in love with something, Justin, and you love doing it. So it's not a job. No. It's a hobby. It's a hobby you get paid for. That's exactly you know, it. thing about that, you just alluded to it there and now, that I'm, I'm kind of um, kind of uh, expanding a little bit of something else you started listening to you said on your own podcast that uh, you've always been a spender. Not mm-hmm. a saver. Yeah. Has that kind of changed now? Have you have you have you gone the other side or are you gonna go wee bit to the other side or I don't think so. I think I, I think you did say that you know if only part of the saving if all if only you'd known there was going to be a global pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, plan for it. Echoes away for a rainy day. Yeah, some people have, you know, and some people have done have done uh, been all right like that, but you know, I, I'm not complaining. I mean, this is sort of like it's all relative, isn't it? I'm not. I'm not complaining at all. But I do wish I, I, there's loads of things that I, I wish I was better at. But I think it's yin and yang, isn't it? I think if you were sort of more cautious in one aspect of your life, then you wouldn't be as free in another side of your life. And you know, I, I like the fact that I have to work. You know, I think to myself, that's why I don't do the lottery. If I won the lottery and I won ten million quid, it'd ruin me. It would absolutely ruin me. Because I, I, I could not not do work. I could not, I couldn't do nothing. And that's, this is not some kind of like work ethic kind of working class chip on it. No, I just, it would drive me crackers, not going into work every, not having something to do, deadlines, you know, being behind on something. I, I, I love it. I love performing. I love showing off. I love, I love theatres. I love what they smell like and, you know, everything else and love the traditions and, comedy clubs and, you know, comedians are, are horrible, horrible, horrible people. But I love being backstage with them, listening to how horrible they can be, you know. <laughs> I was saying to somebody the other day, it's uh, one of the things about, the, one of the worst things you can say about a comedian is, and it, we never say it, they go, oh, Dave Smith, is he funny? And the answer, if, somebody, if you said to somebody, is he funny? They go, he's a lovely lad. <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing worse. If you if you said if you told me they went, I saw a mate of yours, comedian, and he said you're a lovely lad, I'd be like, oh no, he doesn't think I'm funny. He thinks I'm a lovely lad. Is that's the worst? Is that's the worst? So yeah, I, I just love it. I mean, I, I regret not doing it when I was 16, 17, 18. I wish I'd done it then. I wish I'd I'd, I'd gone for it then. I really do. I really do. And people go, well, you wouldn't have been the same comedian. Well, I, I, I'd rather have had that risk because I was miserable until I did it. Absolutely miserable. Like, mind-numbingly, what is the point of life miserable? Clinically depressed. Well, I didn't even know what that meant in those days. But yeah, just... Really knew that, did they? No. No. It's just boring. My life was so... And I knew I hated it, and I knew that I wanted to do something else. I knew I had urges. But I didn't know what to do about it because I had no discernible talents. Yeah, you were you, you were a really lovely bloke. That's why I had occasionally you were a lovely lad who was occasionally funny. <laughs> yeah, it's a lovely lad though. Yeah, yeah. Just to just to, to go just to even the daft little thing came into my head, you know. But apparently that uh, 
Ken Loach think you're the finest actor at getting egg on your jumper? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he had this thing because he filmed it all sequentially that sometimes when you're, when you're doing filming, you, you, they, they sort of wrap you in a, a co- take the costume off you for lunch and everything else. But if you get food down here, he goes, that's fine. It's real life, isn't it? He said, you might have just got egg on you after we'd filmed that bit and then we did that bit and you might have had an egg sandwich in between. He was kind of, he didn't really care about that sort of thing. <laughs> he was pretty good about that. Can I ask you a question, Brian? Of course, yeah. You know, um, when you score a goal? Yeah. When you when you scored a goal? Yeah, is there a... six. No, no, I don't mean... <laughs> no, it's, it's lasted longer as well. Yeah. <laughs> but do you sort of like, is there... What do you enjoy most? Because I remember reading the first bit of uh, Rooney's biography. It's a really good bit where he describes that over a goal he scores against cities. I, I mean, I don't know whether he wrote it or somebody helped him, but it's a really kind of lovely description of it, how it comes. Sometimes when I'm on stage and I'm about to do, and I'm having a really good gig and it's bouncing along and I almost sometimes feel it's like you're in charge of an orchestra and you, you're playing in the audience. And I, I find that, so exhilarating and otherworldly and I'm about to do a joke and I know what I'm going to say and I know how they're going to react. I get into this kind of weird space. Is the moments where you're on the football pitch and as the ball's coming over, you know, you talk about visualisation and all that now, but you know how you're going to hit it, you know where it's going to go and you're almost celebrating before you hit it inside. Most of the time I didn't know where it was going to go. (laughs) You're saying that, you're being modest. No, but the thing about you saying is, you're going to do that, and you hit the ball, maybe a pass, or a, I didn't, I didn't do a lot of tackling because I thought it was uh, vulgar. <laughs> so, but to, to score on a goal is is like that, and you're the peak of your performance. When you get to that, when you you, you know you, you know you've got the audience there, and you know that when you deliver that punchline, they are going to be pissing themselves. Yeah, similar feeling, but it's relation, and the, and the relation of that you you scored that goal. It didn't matter how what the goal's like is the feeling is exactly the same yeah you look at that mental goal that that, we, that i tapped in it another one at hillsborough uh with ricochets it's a comedy goal There's, there was a thing on the somebody put it on uh somewhere on the tinter web where the ball isn't actually there yeah right? taking the ball out of it but they've shown you all these daft things that the footballers are doing and in that period of time, you, you did know, do your best to miss that, by the way, because I was behind the goal that day. And uh... well, it was only it was, it was only at least an inch. I mean, I couldn't surely I couldn't miss that. What year was that? October nineteen ninety one. That wasn't it. At Hillsborough, mm-hmm. I love Sheffield. I, I I used to. That's my favourite place to go and watch United. Sheffield, yeah. the, the, you know, both grounds. A few years ago, we were there, and uh, it was it was kicking off outside uh, Sheffield United, and my mate was studying on the layback, <laughs> eating some chips. And he had an app on it and it said United on it, just said United, not Man United or Sheffield United. And this Sheffield United by goes, Are you Man you, you? He went, What? He goes, Are you Man you, you? And he went, Ugh, what's up? <laughs> but those, like, when we, when you score, when players score and we as fans, we sort of like, we have that, we have that moment, don't we, where we lose it and we don't know what's going on and it's just, you know, mind blowing. It must be. And then I often think about how do you, Come back down to earth then, you know, you get all that kind of, uh, you know, hey, come on, think, you know, everyone does all that, don't they, when you score? I used to wait that when we used to play, we used to get beat 9-0 off teams and they'd score the eighth one and then they'd come back to the centre and they'd be going to each other, nil-nil, lads, nil-nil. 
Fucking eight nil, lads. Come on. Conditioned. You get conditioned. You get conditioned in the in that. There's a, there was always a trepidation and maybe a touch of fear when you've got Alex Ferguson as your manager, because you know that you, you would you would get a hairdryer for what you would I would have considered most sometimes the most innocuous things, uh, and 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 for several years later on, not just at that moment. Uh, so that. My one of my things is about that. You, you you have to switch back on, get back in focus. Whatever they were, whatever they're saying, is and that that if something happened in that moment, say if it was just before half time, if he thought you were culpable, you were going to get the hairdryer first, and and the first one after half time was always the worst one. So there was always a, an apprehension that you know, I, I, if I'd done something before half time that I knew was an error. I'd passed the ball to the opposition or I'd miscontrolled it or I'd maybe done something that I thought of oh, a good chance that he won't like this because I'll look over and these faces already turning purple. I used to pray that somebody else would make a mistake in that small period of time. And, I, and that was that was probably the second most joyous moment in the football pitch at Manchester United for me was the score of goal was the best one, but there's somebody else making a mistake yeah. after me. Gave me an incredible relief and joy that I might be getting it anyway. I don't know, but I'm not going to get the full force right after, the, right after it. You know, so I love that story of uh, I've loved that story of the dressing room when when Cantona jumps in the crowd okay. and apparently comes on. And he goes, "You were shit. You done that. You were shit. It's terrible." And he says, "Eric, you can't be doing that. You know, Eric. Is that a true story?" Well, well yeah, because what happens is least up. Dines out in this and quite rightly. What happens is that Eric, Eric does, I didn't see it. I didn't actually see it. Some of the, but I came off the pitch and uh, Gary Walsh was the reserve team, uh, sorry, the substitute goalkeeper. He's selling me uh, uh, that the Eric's come through the guy in the crowd. <laughs> that's not physically possible. I had the physics at university. That's not possible. That's defying the laws of physics because that bit goes right down. And the time that I hear a noise as Eric's getting escorted to the side from the numbers of a, a stushy going on at the side of the pitch. To me, looking, Eric standing on the pitch, he cannot have come through someone and managed to get up and land in. I thought he'd landed in there, get up. It's about three foot drop and get back up onto the pitch again in that period of time. Not possible. I know he's definitely in the one before. Well, Eric didn't get any of those. Yeah, and uh, we thought, oh, this is going to be the time he's going to get it. You know, it must be, you know, nobody, we've all been annoyed at fans, both pro and con. Uh, for, for comments you can hear. And, uh, but this is, nobody's ever, in my time, ever, ever come close to uh, getting involved physically with somebody. Never mind an, an incredibly athletic and sometimes maybe a balletic event in a football game. <laughs> and Eric's sitting there as we go in looking contrite, but we're looking forward to it because we're thinking, well, he's going to get it. He's going to get it, you know? He's going to get it. And he comes in and he, he, he's, he's one of his top ones because he nearly takes the hinges off the door. It's a small dressing room. And he just launches into everybody. This is just exactly that. You shit, you're fucking rubbish, you're a crap. You're fucking hopeless, you're this. And we thought, we were quite happy to take it at this moment. We're happy to take it because we're thinking, well, give, bring it on. It's no problem. What are you, you going to get to him? And he gets to it. And it's like, it's a bit like telling a joke how he did it. And that's why it's so so amusing to tell us a story. He's gone through all that bit. The preamble, he's built it up. He's, he's, he's leading it up. He's, he's leading the band. He's got his... Uh, 
he's the baton waving away and yeah. get the bit where it's going to go bang where the cannon goes off and Eric's going to get a hairdryer and we're all waiting there with bated breath all silent still looking yes this is the moment we've been waiting for, for. And, he, and he turns around and he looks at Eric and he goes Eric and it looks up like a he did actually look very contrite like a, a little puppy and he looks up at him sad and he just said you can't be doing that sort of thing son <laughs> <laughs> and then we thought, well, there'll be something after that. And that, then they just went, get your fucking show up. <laughs> Life with Brian. Life with Brian. Life with Brian. Justin, you won um, Celebrity Mastermind not mm-hmm. long ago. Um, I don't know if you were aware of that, Brian, but it just made me think. Yeah, you in general knowledge. Yeah, well, it made me wonder what your specialist subject would be if you went on uh, Celebrity Mastermind or even just Mastermind. My, my, well, today my, celebrity, my, my uh, subject would be uh, Justin Moorhouse. After all the research I've been doing and all the stuff I've been listening to. Got <laughs> <laughs> <coughs> at five o'clock this morning to download a couple of podcasts, you know, which were very good. I thoroughly enjoyed those last two you did. Yeah. Thank you very much. Your daughter, your daughter is very funny. She's all right, isn't she? Yeah. Cool. Yeah, I like that. It, but your chosen subject, Justin, was um, was Les Dawson. Um, yeah, is that being a student of a student of comedy, or I mean, what inspired your your choice as him as a special I like, subject? Yeah, I liked him before I was a comedian. I liked his sort of story. I, I I like. I always say this. I like working class clever. I like people that come and, and uh, sort of like overachieve their their sort of origins. So I like people like him, and I used to like Tony Wilson for the same reason. People like Mark Radcliffe and people like that. I just like these because I didn't have older brothers. For me, they're like older brothers. You know, they went and did stuff. So I just thought he was very, he, he came from slums, you know, and, you know, he's an intellectual and a comedian. I think that's the, what I like about him. He can, he can, he, he, he'd be welcome anywhere, I think. Yeah. So how confident are you then that if we uh, give you five questions in a minute about the great man that you could, uh, Oh, wow. I mean, we're, put, we're putting you on the spot here. And I'm, I'm kind of on the spot because these questions have been given to me and I obviously don't know the uh, questions. I only know okay. the answers. So, so uh, Mark, if you uh, hit the stopwatch. Okay. Question one. Like Manchester United legends, Brian Kidd and Nobby Styles, Dawson was born in which area of Manchester? Collierst. Correct. Dawson debuted on British TV when appearing on Opportunity Knox in 1967. In which year did he take over presenting the show from Bob Monkhouse? 80, no, I don't know, 81? Incorrect, 1990. In his famous routine with Roy Barraclough, for the pair dressed as elderly female gossips, what was Dawson's character called? Uh, Ada Shufflebottom. Correct. Dawson was the subject of This Is Your Life on two occasions, once in 1971 and again in 1992, when he was surprised on stage in Plymouth by host Michael Aspel during the curtain call of which pantomime? Babes in the Wood. Incorrect. Ah! Dick Whittington. Ah. What is the name of the sculptor who created Dawson's bronze memorial statue that stands in Livingston Anne's in Lancashire and made a commemorative works of Kerry Grant, Eric Mork and Benny Hill and Laurel and Hardy? <laughs> I've started, so I'll finish. It's Graham Ibsen. Ibsen, yeah, yeah. Ibsen. Oh. Okay, so what, what was that? Three, three, three from five? Not bad, not bad. No, two from five. Two out of five. Two, two, two. two. Out of five. How, many got... did you get, how many did you get on the actual mastermind? All of them. Yeah, uh, you, you obviously haven't done your homework. But then again, we did, yeah, we did, I, we did throw this I on. I planned it, yeah. yeah we <laughs> threw this on you somewhat, but uh, anything for a cheap gag. Bastards. I've just got to look. I've got, I've got my books here. I've got my uh, Les Dawson books here. 
No, we did. We did put you on the spot somewhat. Ah, the full collection of Les is there. <laughs> my trophies there. My mastermind trophies there as well. Just, yeah. just one, one final question. Do you actually like cricket, or do you just like collecting wisdoms? I love cricket. I love cricket. There's my wisdoms. That's a very impressive collection for those who can't see. You're, oh, a, yeah. you're, you're a cricket man, aren't you, Brian? For people that yeah, don't know, I, like I love cricket. Yeah. 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 And, and why was it you? What was it you told me at the weekend? Why you like cricket so much? Is it purely to see England get beaten? I like it at the moment. It's because England done very good. That's why yeah. I like it. Like it. <laughs> 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 I watch cricket in Scotland. I've watched cricket in Edinburgh. Yeah, the Scotland beat England there a couple of years ago. Then, mm-hmm. yeah. You know, I, 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 my, I, when I was, I don't know, maybe eleven or twelve, India played a game in uh, Coatbridge, and uh, the weather wasn't uh, the best, so there wasn't any play in the morning. And, and I remember going down to the pavilion and having a peek into the pavilion, and they had uh, prawn cocktails on the table. For the lunch, you know, I had never seen. I don't think I'd ever seen silver service at that point, but then you know, silver service. I was like, so, some could argue, some could argue that people in Coatbridge still haven't seen. Ah. <laughs> but I wouldn't say that. <laughs> no, 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 there was some play in the afternoon. I just thought it was brilliant. I think it's. Uh, I, I like it even more listening to it on the radio. Yeah, it's great, isn't it? I like what I like about it is that you carry it around with you all the time, so. You watch a bit on the telly, you get in the car, it's still going on. I like it. I like it when it's in Australia. I get up in the middle of the night and listen to it. I just think it's yeah. it's just yeah. nice. I'm going on Sunday. Well, that'll be good for you in the the, the winter because you're getting up at five anyway, aren't you? You can do it yeah. before the cricket starts, can't you? I can, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I'm off to uh, I'm going to Tokyo for the Olympics in a few weeks. So, yeah, yeah working for uh, I work for a sponsor and um, Team GB. So I don't know what there's, if there's any test matches out while I'm there, but. Uh, it'll be a similar weird times out there. Have you been to Japan? Yeah, I've been to Tokyo a couple of times. Um, but when I went, it was just we just stayed in like Rapongi and like this kind of expat stuff and not expat stuff, but the westernized stuff. And then I thought it'd be great. We'd go, we'd go for two or three weeks to the Olympics. And then I wanted to get trains and go to some different places, but we can't do anything. We have to of course, the, get in, get out. It's going to be, it's going to be. Yeah. It's, it's work, so that's the main... At least I've got some work for once. I like the way you just moved over Rapongi as if that was a really, 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 really nice part of town to stay in. I don't know if it is or it isn't, because I didn't see anything else. Yeah. No. lots of karaoke bars there. Yeah, it's that kind of, like, you know, like um, office workers drinking and yeah. salaryman type stuff, isn't it, and all that. There's a pet shop there that I saw this pet shop, and it's so incongruous with everything else going on around there. It's sort of business district and there's this pet shop and I said what's the pet shop there and he went oh right what happens is some uh some like western guys will have a girlfriend and uh before they're leaving the girls will say like buy me a puppy so I can remember you and they and they buy them a puppy for like eight hundred dollars and then the bloke goes home to his wife and then they sell it back to the pet shop for four hundred dollars and these dogs just go round and round and round <laughs> It's question time once again, but instead of Fiona Bruce, we've got Matthew. Thanks very much. Um, Ryan Coyle, friend of the show, he asked you, Brian, if you pick three ex-teammates to go on a night out with, who would it be and where would you go? 
doing a night out with um, Tommy Burns, Gordon Strachan, and Eric. And we would go to, I think we maybe uh, go to Tokyo, yeah. Yeah, karaoke bars. Well, that's that's the, the very end of the night. You got to do got, got to go watch other places that are interesting for that. But you, well, you're not allowed in. You can't. Well, when last time last time I was there, you could you couldn't get in. You had to be a member or yeah. or a Japanese to get into the 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 best of the karaoke bars. Have you ever done karaoke? Yeah, have I ever done it? Yeah. No. What would you do if you were? What would I do? Yeah. It's just too many songs to, to think about. Um, yeah, um, white man in Hammersmith Ballet. Decent show. What's your um, go-to, Justin? I can't sing. That doesn't stop a lot of people doing karaoke. No, um, I, I, I always think I want to go something left field. You know, <laughs> just, just go karaoke bands. Go. Have you got any Delgados? <laughs> just going to lay this out there for you, boys. Um, uh, I think I'd uh, something joyous, something something like "Come on, Eileen" or something like that, just to get the crowd going. So if you can't sing it, get everybody else singing it. That's the main thing. Sure. What, what was yours, Mark? Sure, your wet, wet, wet number, wasn't it? Oh Christ! No, um, uh, I've actually done karaoke in Tokyo before, a uh, long time Have ago you? now. But yeah, yeah, and it was the it, had, it was like a six story building, like a hotel or something. But every room in the place was a karaoke room, and you could hire it out. And, uh, you know, you would phone in for pizza and beer and there'd just be like this massive table and you'd all have the screen in front of you. And I went with a load of Japanese businessmen whose English was pretty ropey and I don't speak any Japanese at all. And um, so here's me singing Queen, Don't Stop Me Now or Burning Love by Elvis. And it was piss poor, to be honest. But um, then they had a go. And of course, I'm the only one who could pronounce the words properly so they were they were absolutely lapping it up thinking i was the second you know i was going to be big in japan just because these you know i, I could actually speak the language but um yeah and I, I was in manchester a couple of years ago and what did i do that i think i did fat bottom girls by queen they seem to be my my go-to on the old karaoke yeah. queen and elvis go-to band yeah, yeah you, you do I, actually all this time we've been chatting i've thought who's he remind me of and it is it's freddie mercury it really is <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to have seen, I'd love to have seen you, Tommy, Gordon Strachan, and Eric Cantona walking around Tokyo. That would have been a sight for sore eyes, wouldn't it? Like that would have been like train spotting three. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, the next one, the, the last question we got here is from Solipsism. Is it Brian? Solipsism. Yeah. Uh, and they say, I met you at a snooker club. You're opening with Ali McCoy's, Davy Cooper, and Chris Woods when I was a wee guy, and I asked if it was true you were going to Man United. You said, I'll never leave Celtic, wee man. Then you were gone a few days later. How could you How could you lie to me? Well, I wasn't lying at the time, because if uh, at that moment in time, that was be the truth. So the, the decision wouldn't have been made at that particular point. So I didn't, I didn't lie. No, that's a very diplomatic answer. So it was, it was, that, it was up to that, to the, to the last minute, was it? Yeah, yeah, very last minute. Uh, any 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 doubts whether you were going to go at all? No, yeah, always doubts. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There was even there was doubts after I went. <laughs> 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 after I got my first aid dryer, there were several doubts. Uh, you can uh, you can you've cleared that up now. You put it on the record. You can you can even apologise if you want to, but I won't. 
I've, I've got an idea that's, I know that I did upset several people, but uh, it's uh, one of Frankie Boyle's, a fellow comedian of uh, Justin's, uh, one of the things he's mentioned as well about breaking his heart as a whatever age he was at that time as well. You, know? you can't, you, 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 the Celtic fans are not a forgiving uh, type. I went to, did a tour, I did the tour about two years ago, just after Brendan Rodgers had left. And the, the guy there, I don't know if you know him, David McLaughlin, he invited me to do the tour and he gave me the, 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 the full kind of like experience, loved it. An hour and a half, we're in there, did everything. Not one mention of Brendan Rodgers. Yeah, you can't even mention his name now. No. There's two people you can't mention the name in the history of Celtic Football Club. <laughs> you and Brendan Rodgers? No, I would be quite that. In an ironic way, I would quite like that. <laughs> Get him to not be the one that, there's, the, uh, there's the unmentionable, there's two unmentionable ones now. So... There's one that played for. They ended up playing for. Uh, yeah. See, he's unmentionable one one, and uh, the Leicester manager is unmentionable one two. <laughs> you're not. You're not quite in that company yet, then, Brian. Yeah. Well, I like that I'll, phrase. My my mate's a big Celtic fan. He always calls him them. <laughs> them. I'm intrigued to know, Brian. What were you doing opening a snooker club with three Rangers legends, though? No, I don't, I don't know. I, I, I was clearly the token, wasn't I? Must have been, uh, <laughs> yeah, and then two days later he buggered off. So I mean, I think uh, that one, that maybe that club was in uh, it was some little, with like Airdrie, and maybe the following night I opened one in uh, in uh, Coat Bridge where there was three Celtic players and one Rangers player. Maybe that was. It wasn't, it wasn't the loud wasn't the Loudon Tavern, was it? <laughs> One of my uh, favourite Rangers Celtic type things is, you know, the DJ Graham Park. Yeah, yeah. he's an Aberdeen fan, but uh, he he, um, he gets a phone call uh, when Rangers were playing in the uh, European Cup, uh, Europa, UEFA Cup final in Manchester. He said, uh, "Graham, can you come down to the fan park?" He said, "It's it's, it's a nightmare. It's, it's going off like they're throwing bottles of piss at the DJ. It's it's a nightmare." So Graham goes, what? And he goes, we'll give you this amount of money. So Graham goes, all right, I'll get down there. He says, he walks in. He said, I never, it's bedlam. Ah! And he, he listens and they're playing the best of simple minds. <laughs> <laughs> he, said he, wa- he said he walks in. He goes, he walks in, he just puts Tina Turner on. He said, the place, the place goes mental. And he went, you're a genius. <laughs> <laughs> Thought they'd like simple minds. They're from Glasgow. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that then is our cue to sign off. Justin, it's been a pleasure having you on. I hope you've enjoyed it. I've enjoyed it immensely. Yes, thank you very much. Fantastic. What What have you got planned for the summer? Uh, I'm going to Japan for the Olympics. Hopefully, I've uh, got some gigs uh, lined up. Um, some outdoor stuff, some indoor stuff, and, and hopefully if we get back to normal, I write some new jokes and then plan a, plan a tour for, for, for next year. Um, maybe the Fringe and go to Edinburgh. Now I can stay at Brian's now. I know he lives in Edinburgh. Yeah, I've got a place to stay. Well, it's going to be yeah. Yeah, and, uh, yeah, so that's what I'm doing, just carrying on, really, and doing stuff, just trying to be just trying to be a good human being. Honestly. <laughs> a lovely human being. Yeah, yeah a nice, a lovely, a lovely bloke. Yeah, yeah. And this Great. summer, I'll mostly be panicking because my daughter's 16 and going to a festival. Awesome. So that's what I'm panicking about. 
Uh, well, good luck with that. Um, good luck with the tour and the, the trip to Japan and everything else. Um, and you can follow Justin on Twitter at Justin Morehouse to keep abreast of what he's up to uh, and where you can catch him in the future. Uh, Chucky, Matthew, thanks very much as always. No problem. Always a pleasure. Yeah, thank you very much, Justin. That was wonderful. Thank you. Um, we're fairly rattling through these episodes now, aren't we? So thanks for sticking with us. Uh, we hope to see you again soon. So don't forget to hit subscribe on your chosen podcast platform. Uh, leave us a nice review if you like. Uh, and say hello on Twitter at Brian McClare Pod, where we share bits and bobs and you can get your questions in for Brian. So until we meet again, cheerio. Life with Brian. Life with Brian. Talking films or music. Life with Brian. Talking TV and food Life with Brian Talking trivia and exercise Life with Brian It's different every episode Life with Brian Talking politics and football Life with Brian It's different every episode Life with Brian Life with Brian Sports Social Podcast Network.